You can take your copy of God's Word and open up to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we continue looking to the future and having a grasp for the importance of having not necessarily every answer, but knowing where it is headed and having the Lord's perspective on it. We're going to continue, we're going to do a little review, looking back towards all of these seals in chapter 6, but let me just read what we'll focus on before we begin. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And then I looked, and when I When he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth... And the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Father, we stand before your word this morning, your instruction. We know that even as we look forward in time to such a period of destruction that, as is described here, that the world has never known, that we would come away and learn from that. Something this morning that would cause us to rightly view ourselves in light of your greatness, of who you are and who your son is. That there is something going on even at this moment that is cosmic, that is grand, that is above us. And we play a small part. But let this reorient us this morning to remember just how great, just how worthy Christ is as we look to John's revelation. You just asked us in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we continue looking at uh, this great book, I know that it comes with confusion. I know that because I'm studying each week. And then I get questions, and I think I'm clear, and then it's like, well, maybe this is this, and maybe this is here. And so I know that happens, but... What keeps me in the Word, what keeps me studying week in and week out is one, I hopefully, a good sense of humility that says I don't know everything, and I know it's a surprise to many of you, but I don't know everything. 
But it's also that there are answers. And there's also ways in which I can sharpen and clarify things in a way that cause me to see the greatness of Christ. Which hopefully, that's what I want us to do as we look here at these seals continually being broken open by the Lamb. But remember back, for those, and you're wondering, especially if you're visiting this morning, you're jumping into Revelation, and that Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, that I, I want you to see, if you want to flip back there, to see with your own eyes, this should be a conviction that we have. That Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads. And those who hear, so that's you, if you're not reading this morning, you're at least going to hear something. The words of the prophecy, and it's not good enough just to read and hear. You want a blessing? Blessed is the one who reads, who hears, and then thirdly, who keeps the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Early on, we spent a lot of study on the nearness, the imminency, just the sense that it's not saying it's tomorrow as much as it's saying it's the next grand cosmic event. After the church age, this is what comes next. And you might say, well, there's no need if it's after the church age. And if we believe you, Josh, and the church is raptured, then why do we need this? And I would argue because it says you do. It says you need to know these things. You need to trust in these things. You need the hope and the confidence that comes with knowing the future. Not every detail, but these are the things the Lord says. You don't need to know everything, but you should know this much. And if you understand this much and you read this much, then it should cause you to keep these things and it should impact the way you live. And so I think it is just as important today as it was for those seven churches that got this letter there that we studied over the first few weeks. This is the reality that you and I need God's perspective. We gain different perspectives different ways. I just, even the last decade, how different things are. And you don't, I don't read even myself as much as I used to read, right? I can go and I can Google and ask a question, or I can watch a YouTube video and try to figure out something. And those things are great. But you think about it this way, you're always looking for someone's perspective. How did they do that? Did they do it this way? Did they do it differently? We watch the news, and the news gives them, gives us their perspective. When you look at the new year, 2023, you're going to have a lot of people try to predict. I saw two articles this week on CNBC. The stock market has tipped its hand. It's going up. And then the next article, it's going down. It's going to be the worst year ever. Which is true? I don't know. I suppose it could say the same. Up, down, say the same. They're sharing their perspective. There's a perspective they give on the future, but we need to know what is God's perspective on the future. What does he think is going to happen? And then, of course, within that, we don't want to be searching for Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things of the Lord. We're not looking for things he hasn't revealed, but we're looking at the things he has revealed. And so you look back here, Revelation chapters 1, 2, 3, those early churches, we saw that those are the things that are. Those are the things that were addressed in that first century church and in some way apply to us even as a church today. And you see those challenges they have. Well, every church has those challenges today as well. The church age has those challenges represented by those seven churches. But then something shifted in chapter 4. And after these things, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Look, I looked, John says, and behold, a door 
standing in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so we're told early on as the angel reveals to John that you're, you're to record what you see. You're, you're to record about the things, record the things that are, and we look at the seven churches, but also to look forward and to see here the things that are after these things. And so we see that shift after chapter 3, no longer the things that are, but the things that are going to come. I promised the graph last week. If I ever don't come through when I say things when I preach, I don't always remember what I say. Um, but I remembered this week. I had some good reminders. And I, and I think just looking up here, if hopefully that's big enough that you can see, just walking through some of the big pictures and maybe answering some questions for you. And if I don't, then just ask me later and I'll, I'll either say— the church doesn't have a position on that or something, um, if I don't know the answer. But this is a helpful grid for understanding where we are. We did a little more work, and I know it's been a while back as we started Revelation. But when we look at the scriptures and we find this phrase, particularly at the very bottom there, the last days, you're going to find that addressed as early as Genesis 49. You're going to find that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and that the last days we are, are being addressed that there is a time period that is the end, which is the, called the last days from the very beginning of Scripture. All through Isaiah, all through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, you see this terminology. And then just briefly, you think of Joel chapter 2, which Peter brings up in Acts chapter 2. And he says, these are the last days. Same thing with Jesus, right? We're living in the last days. It's not to say that the world ends tomorrow. That's the phrase to say, we are in this latter period. But within that latter period, it's not to scale by any means, but you have the church age. You'll see there if you're looking left to right. And we understand we're in the last days. That's where we are living before the lamb comes who is worthy and breaks open the scroll and takes back what is rightfully his, which is the earth, which is what we saw in chapters 4 and chapter 5. We understood and we taught on that the church is raptured. The focus goes off the church. And one of those last days promises, as you look in Isaiah, when you look in Deuteronomy chapter 4, they refer to Israel. And so the focus goes back to Israel. And you see the inauguration of Christ and the church in heaven with him. We've noted that the church disappears in chapter 3 and doesn't return until the end of the book. And it makes sense because the focus goes back to Israel. The focus goes back to those prophecies we've seen in Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. We've looked here at the beginning of these first seals. And so just looking briefly at this tribulation period, why seven years? Well, it's because it's repeated over and over and over again. Daniel, 70 weeks. There's been 79 weeks that have been fulfilled. You're waiting for the 70th week, which is a period of seven years to come. It's really not even controversial that it says seven years. It's just a matter of if you take it as an actual seven years. But I think as we go through Revelation, you're going to see he continues to go back to 1,260 days. He goes back to the number of weeks, 42 weeks. And read its plain sense that this is what we understand it. And we come now to chapter 6, and you see that when chapter 5, John looks around and is wondering, is this the time? 
And if these are the things to come, it's not surprising that the church age is somewhat breezed through. Because we're transported to heaven, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it begins, and he's wondering, well, what's next? What's right after that era? Right after that era, it begins with finding the one who is worthy to take the scroll. It's quite the image, back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. It says, Then I was crying greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. So the lion is introduced, but he appears as a lamb. And not just any lamb, but as a lamb who, as if slain. Look at verse 6. Then I saw in the midst of the throne the four living creatures in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns, seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Which is to say, this idea of seven and perfection. Perfectly omnipotent, perfectly omniscient, and having the Spirit sent out into all the earth. And that Lamb, which is Christ, is worthy, worthy to be slain. Or excuse me, he's worthy because he was slain for us. It introduces that he's able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. And we began that study last week, chapter 6. So we're getting there this morning as we kind of begin to unwrap where are these seals. Now, I don't want to get bogged too much in the weeds, but hopefully this is somewhat helpful. I had some questions on this. And even in my own study, where do you place certain things? And this is a helpful graph I felt that I found. Um, People use the word telescoping because when you have a telescope and it's small and you extend that telescope, you get this idea of a telescoping effect. Because what you're going to see, yes, we've gone through, we've broken the first, that is Christ, as we've seen him break the first four seals. But eventually you're going to see him get to the seventh seal, which we're going to have an interlude before that. And then he's going to get to the seventh seal. And so you'll notice the seventh seal is like all of a sudden it's all contained, it would appear, into... These seven seals. But that seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. And then that seventh trumpet contains the seven bowl judgments. For now, I think that's just helpful to hopefully you have a a grid for these things. And to say these are judgments. Judgments what? Judgments that have been stored up from the foundation of the world. This is the consequence of sin. This is the consequence of Satan entering the world for Adam and Eve sinning and usurping what is rightfully Christ, which is this earth. The Lamb receives this, the seven seals, the, we understood as the, the title deed to the universe, and he's going to take it back. How? This is expressed in Revelation. This is how, through these various judgments, everything will be worked together. Everything will be fulfilled. All the promises of God, both to his people, to Israel, and to the nations are going to be fulfilled through these various judgments because the Lamb is able to break that and begin this series of events. Now, where do you place these kind of along the, the, chronology, uh, the, the chronology in those first three and a half years? It would seem you pretty much for sure probably have the first four somewhat early on in, uh, early on in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. 
That fifth one we're going to see this morning seems to be where you've had enough time that people have been martyred. And so you're moving towards the middle. But for sure, as you get to probably the sixth, either you're at the middle and beginning the seventh. And then that last three and a half years is involving the seventh seal, which of course involves all the trumpets and all the bowls. Because it gets just like childbirth. Matthew, Jesus says, birth pains worse and worse and worse, stronger, closer together, and you're going to feel it as the judgments get worse and they get worse. And what we're going to see, again from last week, is that the wrath of the Lamb is something to be welcomed by his people. So much so that the martyrs cry out, How long, O Lord, till judgment comes? But yet feared by his enemies. There's two human responses in these last two seals. The two human responses are going to be one of crying out of, Lord, accomplish your work. Make all things right. Take back the earth. Reign from your throne here. And the second is of, all those described as in power, being afraid. And ironically, who's afraid of a wee little lamb? But all the great men and all the kings and all the commanders, they see that lamb and they run and they hide. We'll see that in verses 9 through 14. Just as a quick refresher though, looking at this first seal, chapter 6, We're going to see that he cracks the first seal. The four living creatures stay with one voice. They say, come. And that first seal was described as a white horse. And the first four seals all get horses. And so we know them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But the first horse looks familiar. It looks familiar because it's a white horse. And most of us have an image of Jesus riding in on a white horse. If you're my age and you watch movies, it's not Gandalf. It's a picture of Jesus conquering, but here it's not Jesus. Here it is something like a counterfeit, a usurper, a deceiver in that it is a white horse representing triumph, conquer. But he who sits on it has a bow with no arrows. That is, he's going to accomplish peace not through war, but he's going to accomplish peace through treaties, through agreement, through politics. He has a crown and he goes out overcoming and to overcome. That is, he is going to bring on the earth, the beginning of the tribulation, a false peace. If you go to Daniel chapter 9, you'll see that false peace ushered in by the peace made with Israel by the Antichrist. The scene there shifts from, obviously, out of heaven to the earth. And although he is not Christ, he looks a bit like Christ. He does miracles. People celebrate just like Jesus' miracles in his gospel ministry. But he is not true. In fact, what we're warned in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse by Christ himself is he says to them, which I think particularly if you look at Matthew 24, he says to that generation that is alive at the time, particularly see that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and many will be deceived. They're going to look and say, the end is here. Or perhaps at the beginning, 
It's so wonderful. We've never had such peace and such strength and such power and such riches on the earth as they do now. And they might be tempted to think, Christ has come. The kingdom is here. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, don't be deceived. There's a similar way. I think Matthew 24 is talking to a particular generation, but also I would say we obviously know from the rest of the New Testament there are comes that people that come that are antichrist, little a, the spirit of the antichrist that is trying to deceive even the church, or as Hebrews says, deceive the elect if it was even possible. There's always a temptation to look towards a promised golden age, to, to want heaven on earth now. And you have multiple places, the all of a discourse, I think of the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. This isn't heaven on earth now. In fact, the Lord hasn't come. The day of the Lord hasn't come because you would see these signs if we were to walk through 1 Thessalonians. If you, have you seen, have you seen the, uh, the man of lawlessness? No. Well, then the day of the Lord hasn't come. In fact, worse things are coming. And so it even puts our own difficulties now in perspective because this isn't the worst time the earth will ever see. Actually, that is to come in the future. And so don't be deceived by the peace that comes with this white horse. Don't ever be deceived when, you know, there's, there's a hope and a peace that comes apart from Christ. It's a false peace unless it involves Christ. The second seal we see is described as a red horse, a blood red horse, one which is riding out, describing war. The one who sits on it's given to take peace from the earth that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. Well, that sword does, as you can imagine, its work. So it's a weapon and it describes the war that he brings on the earth. This matches up with the rest of scripture and just trying to pair a few things this morning with the Olivet Discourse. You're going to see this come, that there's going to come in that seal with it, that there are here wars and rumors of wars. And it would seem not just like you see today. There's always rumors of wars. If you turn the news on, there's always some nuclear thing that could happen. This would be something that is even more severe. You're going to see that you should not be alarmed for those things must take place and that the end is not yet. For the nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That is war, war, war. And in various places there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. Thirdly, we saw that the third seal, that is a black horse, is the description that what is coming in this first three and a half years is famine. Famine described here in verse 5 that the black horse who sits on it had a pair of scales in his hands. Not scaly hands, right? But a, a scale to weigh balances. I heard something, he says, like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. One chronics of wheat for one denarius. That is to say, this is a place where you can work one day and you have just enough to feed yourself. You can't feed your family on that. Or the same here of three chronics of barley, which would be less valuable than wheat. It could maybe go a little further, but still, description of poverty and goes so far as to say, do not harm the oil and the wine. Those things are precious commodities. If you waste them, they're gone. You just can't go to the store and get another one. Famine has come. The black horse has ridden and has entered. Seven, verse seven, uh, he opens the fourth seal. And you're going to see that a pale horse or, or a greenish horse comes, one looking sickly, describing disease and death. 
The pale horse that sits on it had the name of death and Hades. It was following him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill the, with the sword and with famine and pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Various places there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. This is not a joyous time as these four ride out and begin, but they begin God's taking back of his world. He allows these things to go forward, these things to happen, and it is under his sovereign plan. In this period, one quarter of the earth is going to perish. And this isn't even the second three and a half years, which are described as more severe and worse. It's not a time you would wish to be part of. In fact, it'll be the opposite, right? As you think of Matthew 24, time you wish you were not. Fifthly, where we're going to dive in this morning a little further, is looking at this fifth seal. And this fifth seal is interesting, and why it is so interesting is it's not like the others. We had some similarities. I'm waiting for the next color, the orange horse, right? The purple horse. No. How can martyrs, saints who have been killed for the gospel, crying out? How is that a judgment? Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witnesses which they had maintained. And so he opens, he cracks the fifth seal, and every time the seal is cracked, it's not read aloud, but it is seen. He sees the vision, and this is what he sees. And underneath this altar, there's lots of questions over which altar. I don't think it's not the altar upon which you'd see a lamb sacrificed, but probably most people think an altar of incense. But there are other souls, the picture is, of them who have been killed because of two reasons. The word of God and because of the witness that they maintained. And he sees them there. And he hears them crying out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true? They're crying out the very words which we've seen earlier in Revelation, that this is Christ the true one. He's holy and true. In fact, there might even be here appealing to his character, to his quality, to his person. You don't, you're holy. You don't withstand sin and unrighteousness and injustice. I was murdered and you are holy and you are true and I know you will fulfill your promises and you will, verse 10, judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They simply, in a perfect way it would seem because they're not in sinful bodies anymore. They're at least souls. I don't seem to, they call them souls perhaps because they haven't received bodies yet because the, their resurrection has not come yet and they're longing for it. And crying out. How long are we going to have to wait? They were given the very things promised to the martyred saints of the church. Chapter 3. They're given a white robe. Verse 11 here. In chapter 6. It was given to each of them. And it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer. Until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed. Even as they had been 
would be completed also. And so, imagine with me as you were walking through this and you see the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, martyred saints. And just, it, doesn't it feel a little like, well, one, one doesn't seem to fit like with the others. And even more so, we understand the question. You've probably felt this question in your own heart. And you look at the answer and it's not yet, not yet, not yet. Which is a good reminder because the Lord, as Peter says, is not slow as some count slowness. He's saying there is part of my plan that is still going to go forward. And there are still more. And we think of that, that the Lord is patient so that more come to Christ. And I'm sure there's some truth in that during this period of time. But here, that's not the way it's worded. The way it's worded is there are more who are going to come to Christ, but those who are coming to Christ are going to give up their lives. They're going to be martyred, to be killed, even as those who had been. There are more who have been set apart for that purpose. And I don't know if that makes them feel good or make them feel bad, but I know they trust the Lord and they know that he is holy and true. It's just to say, you might feel like the Lord's timing is not perfect, but it is. And you might have a similar question of why And at least here is one place where you go, the answer is not that it's not going to happen, just not yet. And sometimes that is all the answer we are going to get in this life, that it is not yet. But what does this describe? I don't think the judgment is that people get martyred. It's not a judgment for a believer to be martyred and to be absent with the body, to be present with the Lord. The judgment here is on the world that these prayers are praying for divine judgment. They really are. There's, there's no other word for it. It's hard to put vengeful with prayer. But that's what this is. This is a vengeful prayer of the martyred saints. That's who's casting judgment on those as they've been killed during these different judgments along the way. They're, they're praying, I think the power of prayer, they're praying that the Lord would exercise his judgment and come back and finish what he has begun. You look at the Psalms, and we could look at a number of them this morning. We're, we're not going to take the time, but you, you read David crying out, the Lord would avenge. You, you see other places where they, they ask that the Lord would protect his righteous and punish the wicked. It is this. You and I, in this age, we're not, you might feel this prayer. We're obviously not looking for vengeance. We're looking for the Lord to save. But somewhere along the way, as these rise to heaven, and they understand that the Lamb has come, and he's cracked the scrolls, and it has begun, they're just wondering, how long? I think we can all understand that to some degree. Romans 8 says that all creation groans. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with the animal kingdom. There's something wrong with the earth. There's something wrong with humanity. And you're going, Lord, come and fix it. That's their prayer. Not too different than the end of Revelation, which has... It ending with, come Lord, quickly, come. 
So in that way, I think we cry for the same thing. We, we ask for the same thing. But this is looking towards this future where this divine judgment is going to come down. And he's not just going to allow his people to be wronged. That's true of this era, and that's true of every era. And I think that's something that can be comforting. Vengeance is the Lord's. It's not yours and it's not ours. But lest we think there's no cost, there's no punishment. People continue to mock Christ. Maybe they've mocked you. Maybe they've rejected you because of Christ. It's not your place to judge, but don't think that there is no judgment. The Lord when it's all said and done, is going to make everything right and fulfill all promises and here fulfill all judgment for those who are not his. Including all those martyred during those first three and a half years and even beyond that, it would seem, because the number grows throughout till the end until the Lord comes back. And then in verse 12, beyond that, um, or even just real quick looking at the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, it says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Just to, to correlate the seals to the discord, I think it's, it's helpful. The sixth seal, before we have an interlude next week in chapter 7, looks at this whole idea of cosmic darkness, destruction, earthquakes that are going to come. Verse 12 says, then I looked and when he opened the sixth seal, so imagine that again, he, he breaks open the seal and then... John sees something. What he sees is a great earthquake and all these cosmic events that should tell everyone living something's not right. There's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth made out of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. Verse 13, the the stars are falling out of the sky to the earth. Described as a way the stars, how are they falling out of the earth? Or how are they falling out of the sky to the earth? Like a fig tree. We don't have fig trees. I don't know. Imagine some other oak tree or maple tree or something like that. Or something that, like a cherry tree with cherries on it. Where it's unripe figs are shaken by the wind. And all of those figs come flying down. That's the picture here. Maybe a better one, I'm thinking of our, our world we live in, of the apple tree, and you shake it, shake it, shake it, and things just start to fall out of the sky chaotically. And it's a sign of this cosmic judgment that is happening. The sky, verse 14, is split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Islands? Mountains? This is something we have not seen. I've been involved in a couple earthquakes. It was interesting. I had uh, my bedroom where I lived in California had a wood floor. And it is pretty weird when you feel a wood floor roll. But it's a small earthquake. But I do remember my first one. And just standing there and all of a sudden you just kind of rolled up. Came down. Everyone's freaking out. I'm from Nebraska. Tornadoes? No big deal. Earthquakes? Eh, don't know much about This isn't a little roll. This isn't some little cataclysmic event. And we've seen, you see the damage throughout the world, earthquakes and these things cause. This is something even beyond that. 
worse than the world has ever seen. So bad, verse 15, he goes on. Then the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, and I think this is intentional. It's intentionally saying those who are the strongest, those who are the most powerful, those who are the richest, the strong, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And the great day of wrath has come. Who is able to stand? We saw that phrase last week. You don't think of the Lamb as the most most wrathful creature in the animal kingdom. But all of humanity, its strongest, its weakest, its most powerful, run and hide. And you could say for the very first time, for many then, we're going to have the right perspective of who God is and who we are. There's a great book titled, uh, When God is Big and We Are Small. And it's helpful because so often we evaluate the world in a way where we view, intentionally or not, poor teaching or not, we start to imagine God is someone or some, someone that is small. Revelation calls us back to say, no, God is massive. We start to think we have some semblance of authority, power, no. Do we as human beings, made in the image of God, reflect his character? In our best moments, yes, we do. But in a small way. He has authority not over a few people, not over a large company, not over a nation, not even just over all the nations, but over the entire universe. We are not worthy He is worthy. And here the judgment will come. Something we need to know. We need to be reminded of. Judgment has a cosmic purpose. I think this is an important point. That it it has a purpose that isn't just, that's bigger than you and I. And as I, you know, I've talked to different people and thought through personally. And I mean, I'll be honest, preaching Revelation has its challenges. But you go, why? If you ask someone, why, why, why didn't you preach Revelation? Or when did you preach Revelation? What did you do? And why did you make these choices? Did you preach it really fast? Did you, did you preach it really slow? And, and one of the reasons, not only from chapter 1, verse 3, that I do think if you hear it, if you read it, if you keep it, there is blessing. So yes, don't just ignore Revelation. Hopefully some of you, if you read your Bible in a year, you just finished it whole way through. End with Revelation. But it is a way in which this, not here just, but this whole section to come puts God in the right perspective. It puts him right where he always was and where we just have misunderstood him seated. That this is the throne room of heaven where the angels understand. The 24 elders understand. They are falling down and they are worshiping the Lord. But so often we don't Treat the Lord the way he deserves. This should be a reminder of who he is and what he deserves, what he is worthy of. That in the end, 
Not every Sunday, not every sermon, not everything is about you and me and what we're going to do tomorrow. It's okay that this is about what God is going to do. And don't think for a minute that you knowing and having confidence in what he will do in the future here has no impact on you. It should have a massive impact on you. Massively impact the choices you make in the way that you live. Like I said, the church is raptured here. So there's no discussion of the Bema here. There's places elsewhere of the Bema. But in a similar way that these believers during the tribulation period are wanting to honor the Lord the same way we should be knowing that there is coming the day where we will stand before the Lord. It's a reminder that God is big, that we are small, and that he is coming back. He will return, and he will begin to take back what is rightfully his. And we should say with John, come Lord quickly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have spent to be reminded of your greatness to not be discouraged that we are small, but to be encouraged because the reality is we are small, but yet we serve and we worship you who is infinite, who is mighty. May it impact the way we live, even as we come into this new year, the way we read your word to keep in perspective that we are reading not just to learn what to do, but to know you. And then that might bleed over as we know and as we see you, that we desire for others to see you the same way. To see others know and to worship you for who you are as we know you as our Savior. Encourage us this morning with those truths as we sing to you now. Praise in your name. Amen.